the great fundamental issue now before our people can be stated briefly. It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control themselves? I believe they are. My opponents do not. I believe in the right of the people to rule. I believe again that the American people are as a whole capable of self-control and of learning by their mistakes. Welcome to the Serve to Lead podcast, where we focus on servant leadership as the key to effective leadership and service in our new century. I'm your host, James Strock. As we get started, may I ask a favor? Please help us reach a growing audience by giving us a high rating on iTunes. With us today is Teresa Lina, author of a highly regarded new book, Be the Go-To, How to Own Your Competitive Market, Charge More, and to have customers love you for it. Teresa Lina is a respected business consultant with wide experience in corporate America, as well as at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. She's a strategy and marketing thought leader known for market dominance strategy, creativity, and the ability to bring innovative approaches and fun, upbeat energy into every situation. Teresa Lina, it's a delight to welcome you today. Thank you, Jim. Thank you so much. Teresa Lina, we're living in crisis times. Global pandemic, financial panic, stagnant economics, long-standing political dysfunction. People are under stress, companies are under stress, and there's a sense that an era is coming to a close, but the new one is not quite clear that's opening before us. How do you think about this overall situation from your perspective, and what reasons might you offer for smart optimism? Well, Jim, history has shown us that there is always opportunity. No matter what's happening out there, if we look back through time, even in the worst of times, somebody was making money, somebody was creating value, creating opportunity, and helping other people in some way that paid dividends back. And so there's always an opportunity to, to start new businesses or provide offerings or solve problems for people. And I actually remember during the Great Recession, I was working with the Stanford Technology Ventures Program at the School of Engineering at Stanford. And I was being interviewed and telling the publication that a, a recession is an amazing, wonderful time to start a business. And the person thought I was crazy, but the fact is that um, it's that it's an opportunity. You know, you're going to be small anyway. Uh, you're going to have limited capacity anyway. And while the market is a little depressed, you can get out there, test what you've got, try it out, uh, learn from the market. And by the time you're ready to scale, the market has come back because we know all of this is cyclical. The only, you know, it's not, is the market going to come back at some point? It's how long will it take? So it's a matter of being ready. And there are many, many businesses that were started during the, the Great Depression and during the the multiple recessions we've had since then. So there, you know, there there's always great opportunity. Let's talk about your terrific and well-received new book, Be the Go-To. What's your primary message and what prompted you to undertake the arduous process of writing a book? Yes, the, 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 um, the prompt actually was my own problem. And uh, the, the problem was this. What, what is it that causes some companies to 
struggle with their pricing and with getting business, while other companies are out there uh, providing not need, not even necessarily radically different offerings, but somehow those companies manage to charge a premium and have customers flock to them. And so that was the fundamental question that started me on a research path many years ago to try to understand what is the difference between what those two types of companies do. And I developed, I actually saw a pattern I realized there were four key components of the difference between one versus the other. I, I, I codified that into a methodology. And then as time went on, I, found, I kept finding myself wanting to be able to just hand people or clients the, the methodology and say, here, here's what you need to do, go do it. If you want some help, that's great. I'm happy to uh, offer some training or, or help you out. But you know, here's the chocolate chip cookie recipe. I, somebody has finally written it down. And it really isn't rocket science. And I wanted to make sure many people could get their hands on this. And it's it's interesting because when I, I've, I've worked on it on and off over the years. I, I put it down at various times to raise my kids and, and focus on other things. And last year I realized that the book was actually even more timely than it had ever been because more and more companies are facing this problem, especially as marketing has moved online for almost any industry. And so um, even though at the time I was working on the book, the market was going ga like gangbusters. And part of me thought, gosh, I wonder if anybody's going to gravitate toward this because they may not be having much of a problem. There's so much business out there right now. But of course, it couldn't be more timely with the situation we're in now and may be in for the foreseeable future. And of course, uh, there's always competition. So it's, it's a timeless methodology that will be beneficial whether we're in the middle of a pandemic or whether we're you know, in another strong market. The core of your book is the system, the Apollo method of market dominance. Before we turn to the guts of that, why did you select the 1960s Apollo program as an inspiration for your go-to system? Well, it's funny. I I had developed the methodology, the actual the actual uh, genesis of the the core of the methodology happened on an airplane. I was flying to Chicago for a client meeting. I I had done this research, I was trying to figure out for my own business what my strategy needed to be to position myself like the go-to firms out there that I was seeing and studying. And I laid out this four-part four framework, it was four columns, and I put a, a, a label at the top of each column that captured the essence of what you were trying to do for that piece of the, of the strategy. And I, later I decided I needed to name it and I, I wanted to put some kind of a label on it because you know once I sketched out the strategy I thought oh my god I, I'm not the only one who needs this all companies all my clients need this everybody needs this so I wanted a name and I really struggled with different names I, I looked all over the place and one day I'm reading an article about the Apollo space program and there was something about the way that article was written that really struck me and I realized, my God, the, the labels I put at the top of each of these phases fit perfectly with this theme of, of the Apollo space program. And the parallels between what they did to put a man on the moon and what it took to do that 
and what you need to do to establish yourself as a go-to, the parallels were just completely striking. And so I thought, oh my God, that's it. I'm gonna name this the Apollo Method for Market Dominance. So that became the theme and it, it, it resonated with me because I grew up around a lot of people who had worked on the space program. So I was somewhat familiar with it. And then I did more studying of what they had done. I talked to an Apollo astronaut. I talked to different people at NASA. I read up on, on what they had done. And the more I learned, the more I realized, holy cow, the parallels are even more direct than I ever expected. So it turned out to be a perfect metaphor for the methodology. Well, one of the great things for readers of the Apollo method of market dominance is that the four components that relate back to the moonshot, launch, ignite, navigate, and accelerate, also just happen to match the spelling of the author's last name. That's so right. it's very easy to recall and to apply. That's a stroke of genius, one might say. Well, you know, it's funny because when I was sitting on the airplane, airplane that day, one of the reasons I used those those four terms is because I needed a way to be able to remember it. And as time went on, I I actually I actually um, kept thinking, gosh, I don't know if this is a good idea. Maybe I should look for a way to spell go to G O T O or spell moon M O O N. And I kept looking for the right words for each of the four phases, but I kept coming back to that launch, ignite, navigate, accelerate. And it still is so applicable in the end, I decided to stick with it. And I thought, well, maybe it'll help people remember. It does indeed. And let's go ahead a little bit deeper into that fascinating system. Are there a couple of brief examples you might have where you would point to of great success by the application of this system? Yes, uh, I'll get into it in a, in a bit and I can also walk through any details of some of these cases, but a really fabulous one is um, Salesforce. And I don't know if all of your listeners are familiar with that company, but they provide customer relationship management software and tools uh, and marketing tools. Um, most of the company or many, many of the companies that any of your listeners or any of us around the world are customers of, many big companies and small companies use this, this tech, their technology to manage customer relationships. They, they use that to keep track of your account information, to send you emails, to uh, help make their websites uh, speak to you more directly, et cetera. And Mark Benioff was the founder of this company. And it's interesting because he founded Salesforce just after he had first come up with the Apollo method for market dominance. And over the years, I've watched them build that company and I've watched what they've done and it could not be a more perfect case study for what is involved in building a behemoth company and brand. They're wildly profitable. They've, been, they've had unbelievable growth almost since the beginning. And they did it by uh, doing the launch, ignite, navigate, accelerate, which we'll describe in a few moments. But uh, you know, it, it was just really beautiful to watch them do everything just right. I was not involved. I, I was an outside observer, but it was fascinating to see that happen. Another company that's doing a lot of the right things is Tesla. 
they're another great example of, uh, and I can go into any specifics around that. Uh, the book contains dozens and dozens of case examples of companies that have done all or parts of the, well, they've all done uh, some aspect of all four of the phases to in order to be successful. And that's actually one of the key things about this methodology that I realized in my research is if you do only one, two, or three of these, you are very much at risk of not achieving the goal and not being able to sustain the kind of differentiation and profitable growth that you can achieve um, by using the methodology. Uh, the companies that achieve it on a sustainable basis do all four. So that's, that's really critical. Well, let's talk for a minute from the point of view of a reader who may be starting their career or looking to make a change amid all the current disruption, and they may not be part of a large company like Salesforce and customer relations management or Tesla, but they're, let's say, starting on their own or in a small group. How would you suggest they try to comprehend your thinking on this, and how should they start? Yeah, well, the book is fundamentally about, uh, for, for businesses, but also it could be for individuals, but for businesses that struggle to stand out in competitive markets, this is a strategy book that basically tells you how to become the go-to in a market so that customers seek you out as a market leader. It, it allows you to name your price, so you're not having to compete on price and watch your margins fall. And it allows you to stay out of the competitive fray. You rise above the fray and stick out versus being part of the pack. And so this is something that large companies struggle with, medium, small, and even individuals who are trying to get jobs or be solopreneurs. So the book is applicable really across the board. And what's beautiful about the methodology is you can do even, you can, you can even just skim the surface of it and apply just some key components of it and still see big improvements in your ability to command higher prices, get more business, and as a solopreneur or, or individual, uh, earn higher, you know, make, make more money uh, just as on your own or, or with your salary. So it's, it's really invaluable uh, you know, across the board. Teresa Lani, your book is getting off. It got off to a great start on Amazon. It's a top seller in various relevant categories in business. Now you're starting to hear from readers. What do you most hope or like to hear from readers of Be the Go To? Yes. What What's music to my ears is when a reader says, "Oh my gosh." You really helped me see how all the pieces fit together. I've started implementing this and I've already seen a big difference in my ability to win business and charge higher prices that give me more profit to work with to grow my business. That's the ultimate desired outcome. Well, let's turn to a few questions about your own life and work. In Be the Go-To, you relate your takeaways from acting. Please share a little bit about how acting <laughs> affected your thinking, what you've learned from that that say you apply today and that others might find useful. Yeah, I, I started my career right out of college. I actually went into college hoping to be a drama major, but my dad said that I had to be able to uh, get a job and 
make my own living right out of school. So I thought, well, I don't know how much success I'd have with that, so I better go for business because I know I'll get a job with that. So I studied business and I joined a big management consulting firm, Accenture is the name today. And I would be this buttoned up management consultant by day and in the evenings for fun and to exercise my creative uh, abilities, I took acting classes. And so every now and then I would go out on auditions for professional jobs just for the fun of it. And when I go to these auditions, I, you know, I'd show up and there would be a hundred other women who looked just like me, or maybe they didn't look exactly like me, but from a, from a distance, we all looked the same. There was absolutely no hope of any kind of competitive edge. I, I would go into the audition, I'd read the lines, I'd leave. There was no way to distinguish myself. There was nothing I could do short of being gimmicky to stand out. And it was a big lesson in differentiation. Just the fact that when you have a whole bunch of people, even though individually we're all completely unique, at a distance, as part of a pack, we all look exactly the same. And we're not memorable, we're not unique. And even with those acting jobs, I couldn't have, I was in no position to ask for higher pay or um, you know, special considerations. So it was a big lesson in, in uh, what happens when you aren't in a position to stand out and differentiate and how little power you have when that's going on. At the same time, I was at Accenture. We, you know, at that same time, I was working for a business unit that I helped start. And we grew that to, uh, to be quite enormous in a short period of time, almost a billion dollars in uh, just less than a decade. And we used, in the end, you know, part of the Apollo method for market dominance was re reverse engineering what we had done with that success at Accenture. And we were able to charge very high prices we had to really work to break into the market. It was the, the telecommunications market at the time. We had to work really hard to break in, but once we, once we did that, we really did become the go-to in a couple of key areas within that industry. And so the contrast between what I saw in the acting side where it was very difficult to differentiate and have any control over your destiny versus uh, what we did on the Accenture side in building a real reputation as the go-to, there was a stark contrast there, so it was a huge lesson for me. In addition to the differentiation that clearly you took to heart and are leading others to understand as a competitive necessity, were there any other aspects of the acting experience, technically, for example, that stuck with you? Um, and if there's not, that's a fine answer. There's no reason to pull well, one. Well, no, it's there interesting. You know, I, I actually left Accenture several years later um, to try to break into the entertainment industry as both a producer and a performer. I started an educational entertainment production company. And what was really interesting is that... Um, well, what I did is I started the educational entertainment production company, and then I also started a consulting business, and I hired MBAs who were extremely creative, and I was able to have them work on the consulting side, and we, we took the profits from the consulting business, and then I had them also working on the production company, and we used the profits from consulting to fund the production company. 
And so it was interesting because I was straddling two different worlds for a little while there. And one of the interesting things is I went out, you know, I'd go to trips to LA. I was dealing with entertainment people in the Atlanta market and also in Silicon Valley, but mainly in LA, which is where the business was based at that time. And I found that I, I, couldn't, I couldn't trust people as much as I could trust them on the consulting side. And in the entertainment world, you, you really couldn't take people at their word. And having worked for Accenture, I was, I was, if people said they were gonna do something, they did it. Or if they said they had experience in something, they did. And so that was one of the big ahas for me. And that was actually one of the reasons I got out of the entertainment industry, ultimately. Uh, the contrast in the culture between the entertainment industry and the consulting side, even though interestingly, the work itself wasn't radically different. I found that television production is really basically project management and content creation. And so, uh, you know, that was a that was a big lesson. That was that was pretty fascinating. And it it also was interesting just for me to learn where my values were, and how much comfort I took in being able to work with people I could trust. Now, you're a professional speaker as well as a writer. For the moment, in-person speaking events have been postponed or canceled into the foreseeable future. How are you working around that, and what advice might you have for others in that space? Like a lot of other people, I'm definitely doing a lot of Zoom calls and presentations, podcasts, webinars. I am you know, talking to a lot of people and, and then interacting, of course, on social media. And what's interesting is originally my plan was to focus mostly on Silicon Valley with this book because it's particularly applicable. Technology is such a, an intensely competitive world to exist in and a lot of large and small companies need to figure need to do a better job of differentiating it's a it's a big problem in technology and it's so easy for competitors to quickly copy you on functions and features uh, but interestingly with the conditions we're dealing with right now where in person events aren't as feasible I'm finding that I'm able to reach out or I'm putting more emphasis on just reaching out to people in other parts of the world and other parts of the country, more, you know, ahead of schedule. So that's been interesting. So it's challenging bringing a book out in the middle of a pandemic when you can't get out there physically with people. I really thrive, as you can imagine from my acting background, I really thrive on live audiences and human interaction. And uh, it's been an adjustment, but it's also created opportunity. So like most things in life, there's the, down, there's the dark side and the light side of, of an opportunity or situation. And even before the pandemic, the trends have been shifting away from the traditional bookstore sales and so on and standing in various audiences of that nature. They've been moving already, particularly toward podcasts as a way yes. of long-form communication or radio. Uh, it's really a different era for books. Yes, definitely. Things have changed very, uh, a lot. And, and the pace of change is picking up. Uh, things have changed even since I started writing the book, from the time I started until the time it came out. It's amazing. Now, you're also a formal educator as well as one who educates just as a part of all your work. 
when you're dealing with young people, particularly in their 20s, as they prepare for the future in this uncertain time, what lessons do you want to be certain you convey to them? You know, the, the biggest thing is there's, as I mentioned at the very beginning of the conversation, there's always opportunity. And when things are a little more challenging, uh, you sometimes you have to go out and create some of your own opportunity. But definitely be creative and reach out. I know of some students who have graduated relatively recently, and it's challenging trying to interview for jobs and get jobs when there's no live interaction for interviews. Uh, and everybody's working remotely, and a lot of people have hiring a lot of companies have hiring freezes uh, but this is an important time to be networking to be learning and to be looking for for opportunities out there and anytime there's change in a market there's opportunity so change creates opportunity for uh, new problem solving new offerings um, you know, any industry that's going through a lot of change is going to be spending money to accommodate and deal with that change. And so look for places where there's a lot influx, a lot of chaos, a lot of disruption, because that's where you can also find new opportunities. And then the other thing is, if you're having trouble finding opportunities in sort of well-established areas where the skill sets and there are established and there are a lot of people who know how to do those things, go learn something that's emerging. Some new, let's say if you're a coder or programmer, go learn some of the newer languages that are emerging. If you are in digital marketing, go learn some of the new tools that are coming out, the new capabilities that are coming out where there aren't as many people who know how to do that. So that again, it's just like the concept in the book. The more rare and special and expert you can make yourself in, uh, in an area where there's a, a big problem, the more likely you are to stand out and have a chance to, um, to, to have opportunity or get a job or find work or, or sell services. Well, Teresa Lina, let's turn to your own leadership journey. If you could do so, knowing what you know now, what would you tell the 20-year-old Teresa Lina? Oh my goodness, that's a great question. Uh, well, part of me probably would have pursued acting. I probably would have gone for it anyway because as I learned about myself over the years, I am capable of creating opportunities for myself, uh, just like leaving Accenture and going off and pursuing a new venture. I was able to survive and, and make enough to to not just live, but also fund a, a, a second business. And I would have taken the plunge and gone for it. So that that's one thing. And I'd say my all 20-year-olds believe in your ability to land on your feet. That's just so critical. I didn't necessarily have anybody telling me that, not that anybody was holding back, and I certainly had plenty of supportive people in my lives, but they, they probably didn't realize I needed to hear it. Uh, so that would be one thing. And then uh, the other would be to, um, to just have more courage. It, it's related, but just to basically go for it. 
Are there significant matters relating to your view of the world about which you've changed your mind over time? Uh, yes. Uh, I would say I've, um, I've become more empathic and compassionate toward uh, people who haven't had as much opportunity as I've had. Uh, I think I, I, you know, I came from a background where, like, my dad was the first in his family to go to college. Uh, we were relatively, you know, I was, um, I'm a second generation, second, let's see, third generation and fourth generation immigrant, I guess. My grandparents came in as immigrants and then my great grandparents on the other side. And, um, and, you know, neither side of that family came from much. Everybody started from ground zero when they arrived in the country. They started with absolutely nothing. They came with a suitcase and that was it. And so I, I sort of assumed that everybody, everybody had the opportunity to pull them up, pull themselves up by their bootstraps. And I'd say that over time, I've come to realize that, um, that some people are fighting a stronger current than, than I and others in trying to do that. And of course, the, the Black Lives Matter movement has brought that to light for a lot of people. But, but even broader than that, I'd say that's been something I've just come to really appreciate more and more over time. And, and actually quite a shame that I didn't see it sooner, to tell you the truth. Although I, I've often had a big emphasis on helping underserved communities. My educational entertainment production company did a lot of that, in fact. But um, I, I don't think I was as, I don't think I fully understood the way I've come to understand over the last several years. It's interesting because I've always had this suspicion that we learn more and more, we figure things out, then once we sort of have it all down, we die. So, <laughs> so it's important to catch those people right before they disappear. That old saying that every well-lived long life is like losing a library when it goes. Oh, Mike, you know, you're so right. In fact, one of the reasons I decided, by golly, I'm going to get this book out is I had, uh, I've had a number of very close friends pass away over the last few years who didn't pursue their dreams. They had left things undone. They left with a lot of wisdom and knowledge inside them that the rest of us would never benefit from. And the reason I wrote the book to be so standalone is because I didn't want that to happen in my case. This book has a lot of very actionable advice and it's very prescriptive and step-by-step. -step. And I could have written a smaller book that was a little more light and um, not quite as uh, self-enabling. Uh, you know, some authors write books to sort of get you to wanna it's just the teaser and then they want you to buy the consulting services or the training or what have you and I didn't want to do that in this case I really wanted people to be able to go do it on their own if they need more help fine but um, you know that whole notion that that we lose so much wisdom when people leave our world uh, really hit, hit me hard as I watched different friends move on and books of course as you're suggesting, take on a life of their own, separate from the author. I mean, I always think about the fact there's the book you wrote, there's the book you think you wrote, <laughs> and there's the book that other people think you wrote. Right.
And there's a lot of fascinating things that come out of the interaction of those pieces. Yeah, yeah. Yes, and, and, and also the wisdom carries on. You know, like Clay Christensen wrote what's con many people considered to be uh, a seminal work, the, the Innovator's Dilemma. And for many people have said it was truly transformational for them. And he passed away not too long ago. And that book continues to be a bestseller. You know, it continues to impact people's lives, which I think is really special. Yes, and he was certainly a wonderful teacher and researcher. Let's look ahead. What do you see in your own life and work five or ten years from now? Yes, I, I definitely uh, have been finding that some people would like some training and assistance with the Apollo method for market dominance. And so uh, in the shorter term, I, I, I'm looking at possibly offering some training and some membership, a membership program that allows people to get ongoing support and also help each other. So people who are familiar, who've read the book, who feel that the Apollo Method offers something for them as a structure and framework for them to work from, they can support each other and have a community and then I can provide support to that community on an ongoing basis. So that's one thing. Uh, I would like to be out when we're when we're able to get out in front of live live audiences and talk about the methodology and help people understand how it can benefit from benefit them. And then at some point, I have some plans for a foundation that um, is not directly related to the Apollo method for market dominance, but that is focused on helping uh, certain disadvantaged organizations and, and aspects of our planet uh, and using the Apollo method for, for market dominance to advance those causes. One of the fascinating things coming up, and this relates to men and women uh, and likely in somewhat different but parallel ways, but we're going to have a large number of people who have to work longer than they intended. Mm -hmm. people who didn't necessarily view their work as a reason to live but a way to a way to live mm -hmm. or serve their families and so on and also a lot of people who on the other hand will be very fulfilled wouldn't have to work but they're going to continue to work far longer than certainly the traditional that is certainly traditional since Bismarck and then in 1935 Social Security in the United States thinking of the mid 60s as a as a time to pull off or retire, as they used to say. What do you see coming in that respect from what you think about or observe? Well, I, I do think that this whole concept that people lose their value once they hit their 50s or 60s is just crazy. I, there are so many people with so much wisdom and experience that can bring so much. And if somebody still wants to contribute, they should be out there doing it. And I'd say I'd give them the same advice I gave I give the twenty year old like go learn some skills in an emerging area where there just isn't that much competition, and the demand exceeds the supply, and become an expert in that area. You can use the Apollo method for market dominance to build awareness for yourself in that, but you don't even have to do that to just get started in figuring out um, you know, some area where 
you can you can meet the need uh, in the marketplace where there's a dearth of skill of, of required skill. Clear Booth Luce in the 20th century famously instructed John Kennedy that everyone, even presidents, are ultimately encapsulated by history in a single sentence. What would you like your one sentence to be? I would say, oh, that's a good question. Off the top of my head, I would say she inspired others to go reach their potential. Very worthy and smart, sounds like to this listener. Teresa Lina, how can listeners best follow and connect with you on social media? Yes, I, I'm on LinkedIn. They can follow me on LinkedIn. I, I will be publishing quite a few articles that uh, capture some of the concepts in the book. I'm on uh, Twitter at Teresa underscore M underscore Lina. And my, the website with support materials for the book is apollomethod.com. So they can go there and reach out to me there and also get resources uh, that they found in the book or uh, if they want in lieu of the book. But I think reading the book will be very helpful to just giving you a, a notion of the four key things you need to do to really stand out in a crowded market and be able to charge what you're worth. Whether you're a big company, a business unit, whether you're a product organization within a big company, or whether you're a, an entrepreneur. Well, thank you, Teresa Lina. It's been a delight to have you with us, and congratulations on your fine new book, Be the Go-To. I'm honored to call you a friend and look forward to continuing to learn from your important work. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thanks to you, our listeners, for being with us. Please send ideas for future guests and topics. And follow us on Twitter, on Facebook, on iTunes, and through our email newsletter available through our website, servetolead.org. Until next time, take care, be strong, and serve to lead. These are not dark days. These are great days. The greatest our country has ever lived. And we must all thank God that we have been allowed, each of us, according to our station, to play a part in making these days memorable in the history of our race.